Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Just a quick heads up. Out of the Shadows tell stories of people fleeing and living in sometimes violent environments. There are two old portraits that I like to imagine are hanging in a home in Wyoming. One is much older than the other. It's faded and feathered at the edges so that the man's suit in the photo starts to disappear into the background. He's got a nice soft face, a square jaw that underlines his frown. The man has sunken eyes that look like they've seen some things. Eyes that saw a dangerous boat ride from Holland across the North Atlantic Ocean to the United States as a child. Eyes that saw both his parents die trying to make it in America. Eyes that grew up in an orphanage. Eyes that saw railroads being built to the West. Eyes that struggled and fought and made their own way. Eyes that fought for a better life for his children. Which brings us to the second portrait. It's of the man's daughter. She's a regal-looking woman with the same sunken eyes as her father. But she's not frowning. She's actually smiling. She's vibrant, even in black and white. Her eyes tell a different story. These are eyes that learn to play the piano and the organ. Eyes that love to sing. Eyes that studied art and loved to travel all over the world. They are happy eyes of an actress, of a mom, of a diplomat. Eyes that are witnesses to the fact that the American dream for immigrants like her father reached new heights in their children. The man with the sunken eyes who immigrated from Holland is Peter Coy. And the woman in the other photo... His bright-eyed daughter is Lorna Coy. And the house in Wyoming where I imagine myself standing, looking at these two portraits, 
belongs to a six-foot-seven giant named Alan K. Simpson. Peter's grandkid, and Lorna's youngest son, who would go on to lead the fight to pass the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, better known as IRCA, the amnesty bill that would give millions of children of immigrants a whole new generation of Americans, the same shot his own mother had to live a life out of the shadows. I'm Patty Rodriguez. And I'm Eric Galindo. And this is Out of the Shadows, Children of 86. Immigrants and their children have long lived in the shadows of America. Their destinies aren't just shaped by where they come from, but by their particular place in history. In 1986, the lives of millions of immigrants and their children were changed by one lucky stroke of a pen by an unlikely ally, President Ronald Reagan. This podcast will examine the ripple effects the bill had on first-generation kids of immigrants, who are navigating intergenerational mobility and transforming the cultural landscape. This is an untold story of luck, timing, triumph, opportunity, survival, and of course, hope. So remember when I called you, Eric, and I told you that Ellen Simpson just called me back? Of course I do. Okay. So tell me again what happened. I said, hello, this is Patty. And, you know, it was him. And I got nervous and excited at the same time. (laughs) Do you remember? uh, I probably was crying, huh? Yeah, I think you were like, I can't believe he called me. And he's still very sharp. He still has, he's 90 years old and he's very, very sharp. Yeah, he was very charismatic. And I did not think I was going to get emotional. You know, like they say that when you're about to die, your life just flashes before your eyes. Mm-hmm. Like that sort of happened to me when I heard his <laughs> voice. And I was able to quickly reflect on everything that my life has been up to this point. I realized right there and then that because of this man that just called me, is why I'm here. And that is really crazy to wrap your head around. When we finally got to talk to him. Hello. Hello, Mr. Simpson. Yes, now here we are. He definitely lived up to like the hype of, like Alan Simpson is known as like a tough ass, take no nonsense, like guy from Wyoming. And that is exactly who he is. But I said, Believe me, I'm not here to listen to a bunch of shit from a guy who haven't even been through the wars that I have mumbling about veto. And what I find even more interesting, and because we're one bringing it up, is that he's a Republican. Yeah, it's funny to think now like that. Even matters. That it even matters, yeah. To be like, oh, he's a Republican, of course he's not going to like immigration. Or he's a Democrat, of course he's going to be pro-immigration. But there was a time when immigration wasn't really like Democrat or Republican issue. But it was always like very hard. It seemed like they just could not figure it out for the longest time. Yeah, you know, in the past, it seemed like both parties were able to come together to find solutions to big issues. 
But immigration reform has always been a huge fight. The story of immigration policy is really can be told through two signs. One says, help wanted, and the other says, keep out. That's author Charles Kamasaki, who wrote a book about IRCA. There have been dozens of attempts at immigration reform. Even before IRCA, versions of that legislation had been proposed and passed one house or another literally since 1972. One of those bills was pushed forward by Jimmy Carter, who was president right before Ronald Reagan. The illegal immigration will increase. American jobs will be lost. The Japanese and others will move in and take over the markets that are basically and rightly ours. That's President Carter talking about the ramifications of a weakened Mexican economy. Like most U.S. presidents, Carter had a conflicting view on immigration. In the last episode, we told you that President Carter was the first to, quote, weaponize our border. But Carter was also the first president to try and make something like IRCA happen. Carter's plan had increased border patrol, sanctions for businesses hiring undocumented workers, and a path to legalization. But what it didn't have was any bipartisan support. When most of those bills were first proposed, they were called in the Washington vernacular, you know, dead on arrival, meaning it had no chance. But the legacy of Carter's failed plan was establishing a bipartisan committee of politicians. It wasn't led by politicians, though. It was led by a priest, the president of Notre Dame University, Father Ted Hesburgh. First of all, I only took jobs I felt I could do well as a priest because there's some moral issue involved, like forgiveness in the case of the Vietnam offenders, or justice in the case of civil rights, or justice in the case of immigration and refugee policy. Those were all things I felt as both an educator and a priest I could do sincerely without compromising myself in any way and without taking money for it. Father Hesburgh and his commission were asked to study the immigration issue and come up with a solution. A solution to what Kamasaki says was one of the most important issues at the center of the American century. Immigration is one of those issues that goes right to the heart of American identity. What are our values? To what do we owe other people in the world with respect to what our interests are? Who are we? What do we stand for as a country? What do we stand for? What are our values? Well, it depends on who you ask. Because immigration has always divided this country. And in the 80s, it was no different. On one side, you had this bipartisan committee led by a priest. And on the other hand, this narrative that Mexican and Central American immigrants were stealing jobs from good old blue-collar Americans. And people like our parents were being hunted. Because in the late 70s and 80s, it was open season for La Migra. Here's immigrant rights activist Larry Kleinman. The Migra would shamelessly and recklessly racially uh, profile anybody who was brown, accost them, ask them for their papers, arrest them if they couldn't produce them or admitted they, were, they didn't have any. The raids were awful. They weren't just going to people's homes, knocking doors, looking for someone on a list. They would also barge into nightclubs to prey on hundreds of people enjoying a night out with friends. La Migra began detaining anyone that appeared Mexican. It didn't matter if you were a U.S. citizen, living here legally. If you looked Mexican, 
you could get kidnapped, arrested, and charged. And the raids happened all across the country, in parks, warehouses, the fields, anywhere you'd find Mexican and Central American communities. La Migra would just round them up, como que si fuéramos animales. You can hear the trauma they caused in the voices of the people who witnessed them firsthand, like J. Gerardo López. O sea, era una verdadera cacería, una verdadera uh, atrocidad, ¿no? He says the raids were atrocious. López was a reporter based in Los Angeles for La Opinión at that time, where he wrote about immigration. He was living in El Sereno and commuting to the newspaper's headquarters in downtown L.A. And on the way home, after spending the day covering the news, writing about these exact issues, he witnessed things that shook him to his core. Me encontraba a veces, viendo hacia la, hacia la derecha, me encontraba con un grupo de personas arrodilladas en, en, en la banqueta y con, la, y, y con las manos amarradas. He saw the migra round up dozens of people from his community that looked just like him, on their knees, with their hands tied behind their backs, humiliated. It is heartbreaking and demoralizing. And Lopez says it happened all the time. Que la, los agentes de inmigración entraban y se subían los autobuses a pedir documentos, ¿no? O entraban a las fábricas y, y a, a las fábricas y mucha gente, muchos de los latinos a veces. He says immigration agents would jump on buses and demand to see people's papers. They also raided factories. Here's Kleinman again. The raids really picked up around 1970 in the Nixon administration. I stepped into this space 1976, and they really accelerated through the Carter years and, uh, and the Reagan years. Every district office seemed to have a quota of arrests that they were uh, directed to make. And so their strategy was to try to go where there was a concentration of people. According to journalist Maria Elena Salinas, the fear was so strong that it actually kept some people from even talking about immigration. They were afraid of La Migra. They were afraid of raids. They happened mostly like in public gatherings. Ya viene La Migra. You know, then people were, would run away and they would hide. It was either embarrassment or fear of talking about their immigration status. So it wasn't really an, an issue. It wasn't a subject that people talked about. However, the raids became so common... López's migrants developed a system to warn each other from being targeted. Muchos de los latinos a veces se daban cuenta, el primero que se daba cuenta le daba el pitazo al otro y al otro y al otro. Y muchas veces muchos de ellos se iban por... You know, and back then there was no Twitter or Facebook. They would alert one another through word of mouth as soon as they detected any hints of a raid. God, imagine living like that. You know, strange enough, I have this really vague memory. And I know it might sound crazy because I must have been two years old at that time. But I still remember that feeling. And I can't describe this feeling. It's just a, a, a feeling of fear. When my dad came home and told us that his warehouse had just been raided. And... Talking to him, I told him that I remembered, and we talked about it. Pues estamos trabajando y llegó la migración de repente y y 
Le agarraron, pues quieren que lo siguiera, pero yo no seguí, lo quiero seguir siguiendo. Me, me hice para atrás. He hid inside a large garment box while the INS rounded up all his co-workers. Three buses full of men and women that did not make it back home to their families that night. This wasn't the first time it happened to my dad. My mom actually told me about this one time my dad and my tíos got caught in a raid at the factory they were working at. This was before I was born. The INS agents questioned them and they started to pick up their relatives in the neighborhood and my mom, she saw as my dad and my tíos were being taken away. I remember a bus, a migración bus, came to the apartments where we used to live and got uh, Patty's tía and the, and the cousins. You know, the cousins, you know, they, the kids were from here, but the migra got everybody in the family. You know, thankfully for my mom, she benefited from the warning system. And a lady told me, hide, go run. He told me, because the migra is coming. So somebody helped me, a friend. I had a friend in the second floor of the apartment, so she got me and, uh, and hide me in, in um, her apartment. This is so heartbreaking and, and traumatic. And somehow, many of our parents live to tell it. During all of this, Father Hesburgh and his commission were trying to come up with a solution. And at this time, the country's leadership was evenly split between the Democrats and Republicans. Here's Marielena Salinas again. It was actually a bipartisan uh, Congress that gave us legalization. They felt Latinos were helping their communities. They were doing the jobs that no one else wanted to do. They were the, you know, the owners, not only the workers, but the owners of, of, of the restaurants that a lot of people frequent. They were the farm workers. Uh, thanks to them, we were able to have, you know, food on our table. According to Dr. Enrique Figueroa, the commission was created by the bipartisan Congress for a very specific reason. ERCA was supposed to control undocumented workers. And in fact, after ERCA, the number of undocumented workers increased. The growers also said, everybody's going to be eating tomatoes grown in Mexico because we're not going to be able to grow tomatoes or apples or whatever in the U.S. because we don't have the labor. And so this incredible humanitarian crisis combined with the fear that the country was going to collapse without immigrant labor, left the door wide open for someone to step up and change everything. Into the straight-shooting, powerful Republican senator who just wasn't having it. I said, horseshit. I'm not preparing a Republican immigration bill. It has to be an American immigration bill. Out of the Shadows will be right back. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, 
You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back. And this season, we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. back to the show. Alan K. Simpson was born in 1931 in Denver, Colorado, the son of Millard Simpson, former senator and governor of Wyoming, and Lorna Coy, a first-generation Dutch-American. Simpson had a long career in politics, serving as a House member and most notably the Senate Whip a powerful position in the Senate that's charged with getting senators to vote a certain way. Here's author Charles Komisaki. Senator from Wyoming, Republican, conservative. He was a larger-than-life figure. In addition to being six foot seven, he had a personality that's even larger than, you know, his height. Uh, he was funny, profane, uh, clever, smart, tough, Almost like the central casting version of, you know, what a U.S. senator from the West would be like. But before he was a state senator, before he wrote the amnesty bill, Simpson was a lawyer in Wyoming. And that was when he first witnessed the struggles undocumented people had getting even the smallest amount of justice. I was a practicing lawyer in Cody, Wyoming. And uh, down uh, the valley was were the sugar beet people. And a man came into my office one day. His name was Educio Villarillo. I remember him well distinctly. And he said, 
I understand you will help people like me. I said, well, what's up? He said, well, I bought a car from Dick Saul, who was a president of the Chamber of Commerce and Cody. And he said, uh, I hadn't even driven it to Powell, which was 20, 21 miles away, when I found out it was uh, the, the transmission was filled with sawdust. And no one will take this case because this fellow is the chair president of the Chamber of Commerce. I said, I'll take it. I took I took it, and uh, <laughs> the Chamber of Commerce was pissed off beyond belief. As an attorney, Simpson also fought for sanitation rights for Bracetos who would come to harvest beets. Then there were people here among others and of us who insisted upon privacy in the fields, uh, toilets, uh, and we said, well, that's, that's inappropriate. These moments helped shape Simpson's views on the rights of immigrants in this country. But I also like to think that his own personal connection influenced him too. Which brings us back to those two portraits we talked about at the top of the show. Simpson was the grandson of Peter Coey, the man in the photo, the immigrant who came with nothing and rose to be a prominent businessman, who gave his daughter, Simpson's mom, Lorna, generational wealth and privilege that I believe was only possible because Peter didn't have to live in the shadows. I asked Senator Simpson about his motivations. I wanted to know why he decided to write this bill that would give me, Patty, and millions of others the same shot his mom got. To give a legal protected status to our parents, people like his own grandfather. I wanted to know if it was personal or if it was political. Did you feel like this was just a good business idea or a practical idea? Or was was there anything you thought personally about, you know, what seemed fair at all? I don't know how you can not say that I didn't have those feelings. What the hell are you talking about? Let's just do an honest story. And then the audience will either pick it up or understand it or they won't. I don't question his motivations at all. That's Charles Kamasaki again. Senator Simpson was from a place with Wyoming with very few immigrants. And uh, he took on this role, he says, and I have every reason to believe him, because he thought it was important for the country and that he felt like it was only somebody like him uh, from a state that didn't have a lot of immigration that, that could really take the the, the political heat for moving um, and sponsoring this kind of legislation. I think for me, what sort of seals my belief that Senator Ellen K. Simpson never let go of his immigrant heritage is the K in his name, the middle initial, Ellen Coey Simpson. It's a small thing to be sure, but my middle name is my mom's maiden name too. And I don't know. That's enough for me, I guess. But the fight for Urca wasn't easy, even for a hard-ass like Simpson. This is a bill that died multiple times before it was enacted. In 1981, Father Hedsburg of the Immigration Commission submitted a plan which basically became Urca. Reagan announced right away that he would support the commission's proposal. 
but he wasn't really that involved after that. President Reagan was, uh, and, and the administration more broadly, was somewhat engaged in the bill, but not nearly to the extent that, that some other administrations have been involved in, in signature bills. You know, think of the Obama administration and the Affordable Care Act. Well, they were, you know, in every meeting. Simpson says he kept Reagan updated, especially when people in his own party began to oppose the bill. And when people begin to tear my ass off among the Republican Party, I just call him. I say, Ron, where are you on this one? Well, what's up? Well, I know you're moving the bill. I said, well, they're, they're objecting to this or the funding or whatever would, would be. And he'd say, go right ahead. And, and I knew I had him on my side. The next year, the first draft of the bill was introduced to Congress. Simpson and a Democrat from Kentucky named Romano Mussoli collaborated on the bill, and both were the sponsors for their respective parts of Congress. Imagine that. A Democrat and a Republican putting aside their Twitter beef and coming together. It's like Bernie Sanders and Mitch McConnell agreeing on tax reform. The bill went by many names, IRCA 1982, the Simpson-Mussoli bill, SB 2222. They called it a three-legged stool because it focused on three things. Increased border patrol, fines for businesses hiring undocumented workers, and a path to legal residency. Simpson introduced IRCA 1982 in the Senate, and it actually passed. But it didn't make it through the House. It had literally been voted down on the House floor, and most people gave it up for dead. And Congressman Lundgren later described, I think in the New York Times, what his view was, which was it was a corpse. Simpson says the first draft of the bill died because it was too expensive. The following year, Simpson tried again, reintroducing the bill as IRCA 1983. It went to a vote in the Senate and passed 78 to 18. And this time it did pass in the House, but there was a bunch of amendments. And just like that, again, it died. Complicated bills attracted opposition from a lot of different places. Um, and, you know, Congress just wasn't ready yet. Fast forward to 1985, Reagan is just starting his second term, and so is Alan Simpson. And once again, here comes six-foot giant, the cowboy from Wyoming, Simpson, walking into the Senate, hoping for a different result. Well, when I came to the Senate, uh, it was a discussion of the fact we hadn't done anything for 30 years. We're going to put it in the form of legislation. And we're going to do it in a bipartisan ways. You know, this man never gave up. It's been already, what, five years? Whether Congress was ready or not remained to be seen, but for people living in the shadows, time was ticking away. You could go to work in the morning and not have any confidence that you'd come back that evening. According to Kleinman, La Migra's raids continued to intensify as Congress debated the bill. Yeah, it was getting even worse than what we heard about earlier in the show. They had no uh, compunctions about the places they went, 
uh, schools, daycare center, movie theaters, the fields, of course, apartment buildings. The fear was palpable. And they also had the unbridled assistant, active assistance of most local police departments at the time. Um, that was one of our early struggles was to pressure and bring legal actions against local police who illegally enforced immigration laws. In 1986, Elva Maldonado was undocumented and working long hours in a tiny textile factory in LA's garment district. Escuchábamos de todo. Eh, que eso, que estaban negociando cómo arreglar, cómo darle un permiso de trabajo. She says they would hear rumors, stories, reports that the amnesty bill was being negotiated, that they may have work permits soon that there was a lot of pressure from interested groups to get this done. And then one day, the migra descended in droves. Pero nosotras estábamos en el en el lugar, un lugar más pequeño y la señora cerró totalmente. She says that because her factory was so small, the owner just locked it up. And they all sat quietly. The agents probably didn't even guess that people could work in such a small space. But the factory next door had a thousand workers. Que producía miles y miles de cortinas y habían ahí como unos mil trabajadores. Ahí sí entraron y como... The scene she describes is so fucked up. Migra raided the place using every possible entryway. It's scary. They came in through the front, the back, the roof, the emergency exits. Helicopters, police, INS vehicles, they rounded up every single one of those people. And the bill that Maldonado and her co-workers had hoped for was dying. Kamasaki says there was just too many people stacked against it. I think the Latino organizations at the time, uh, LULAC, MALDEF, and the National Council of La Raza all felt like what was being sold as a as a moderate centrist bill was actually uh, too enforcement uh, oriented. A number of of business and kind of right leaning interests, the Chamber of Commerce opposed the legislation. They thought uh, the government shouldn't be involved in their own hiring decisions. So it it became a matter of of a bill that some said had very little constituency in its favor. Uh, but a lot of constituencies lined up against it. Out of the Shadows will be right back. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back. And this season, we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, 
I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective um, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the show. Even Senator Simpson was ready to give up until he got a little help from a little-known congressman from New York, Chuck Schumer. When I put the bill aside, he was a congressman, and he came over and he said, you know, what are you, what are you, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, I'm just going just gonna to shelve it. Oh, no, no, don't do that. He said... I think part of it is uh, the the farm labor program. I said, well, that is just one part of it. He said, why don't I get an amendment together and see what you think of it? That led to a compromise between Simpson and a group of Democrats led by Peter Rodino. The compromise gave agricultural workers an easier way to get amnesty. It was called the Special Agricultural Worker Provision, or SAW. Here's author Dr. Enrique Figueroa explaining how SAW changed everything. The SAW provision, SAW, seasonal ag workers, that said that if you could document that you worked 90 days in a seasonal ag crop, then you were eligible to apply for legal status under SAW. And prior prior to IRCA, the estimates were that somewhere between 300 and 500,000 workers would qualify for SAW status. Okay, as it turned out, it was 1.3 million. The, the grower community wanted more saws because that meant that you would have a lot more, you know, legalized labor force. And obviously the farm workers wanted to get legalized. It was a win-win thing. Republicans believe that saw would undermine U.S. workers and labor protections. But Simpson was willing to make the deal with the Democrats. You can't compromise an issue without compromising yourself. You want to stay out of the Congress, and this is what's wrong with people. The word compromise is a four-letter word. 
you got the left winger saying, you know, compromise my ass, and then you got the right winger saying, you know, compromise my ass. We're we're going to my way or the highway. And with the Saw Amendment, Erka got considerable backing from the powerful agricultural lobby, which Kamasaki points out was a big win, especially when you consider there were big donors to Reagan's political campaigns. There were some quite strong um, agricultural interests, highly represented in, in the Reagan administration, right? Reagan was a governor from California, after all, and um, agricultural growers had, had long been uh, important political players in that state. But victory for Erka was not assured. Because after it finally passed both chambers, it went to committee, where bills have to survive a series of amendments that could kill it. And Simpson says things got intense. Everything we talked about was filled with emotion, fear, guilt, and racism. There was one amendment proposed by a Republican senator from Arkansas named Ronald Caldwell. He put in a, an amendment in my bill, which damn near created it. He said he wanted to make English the official language of the United States. And I, I, I had to take it out in a conference. I said, you know, that, that can't stay in here because that's not what we're talking about. There was an attempt to give it more funding for border enforcement. Remember, costs killed the bill back in 1982. And I said, well... You have to be aware of this, that if you, if I raise that or suggest it to the president, he will veto this bill. Everything hangs by a thread. It doesn't, I, I, was, I was involved with immigration and social security reform and uh, nuclear high-level radiation and Veterans Affairs Committee. Hell, I never, there was no open path for anything. Nothing. You fought. You scrapped. That's what you do. And on the last night of the final vote, the part of the bill that, in Simpson's mind, would have kept businesses from exploiting undocumented workers and kept the flow of undocumented immigrants down was being tested. There was a sentence in there that said that we were going to look for a more secure identifier system. The identifier, or ID card that would have made it so anyone who got amnesty could prove they were legally allowed to work in the U.S., was essentially seen by people as a national ID and by others as an unfair tax. And Grover Norquist, who wanders the hall in his white robes, getting people to vote against any taxes of any kind, he of the right said, this is a national ID card. And that night... Late at night, they took that sentence out of the bill in the House, which took the guts right out of the bill. Because then the lawyer said, hell, we're not going to be the policemen of the world. Hell, everybody backstabbing. It's not a pleasant, it's not pleasant work. The next morning, the bill went up for a final vote. No more wheeling and dealing. No more arguing over the details of when and who would get amnesty. And no more chances. If the bill died this time, it was going to likely fade away into history like that Carter bill we mentioned at the top of the show. Simpson wasn't even sure he had the votes. 
but he gave one last speech, paraphrasing the quote on the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. But instead of that, Simpson reportedly said, No fair quotes from the Statue of Liberty, because it does not say on it, send us everybody you got, legally or illegally. Then the vote came. After years of fighting, exhausting long hours, debating petty amendments, the bill passed 62 to 24. Senator Simpson hadn't been sleeping much throughout the process, with the occasional three-hour sleep here and there. But after it passed, he described it as, quote, absolutely one of the most extraordinary days of my life. I cannot really sleep. I am high as a kite. Simpson's journey with the bill is an inspiring tale that seems impossible in our current political climate. But Simpson fought for those who couldn't always fight for themselves. And in spite of all the warts that Erka might have, it is proof that progress wasn't always defined by a political party. For Simpson, it all started from helping that Bracero with his car trouble. Only a descendant of immigrants could have fought the way Simpson fought to pass the biggest immigration reform law in American history. And now, after years of fighting in Congress, the bill was finally in the hands of the president. Then I got a call from uh, from Ed Meese, who was then with the Justice Department, and he said, I think I'm going to recommend to, to the president to veto this bill. Los Caminos de la Vida! Next time on Out of the Shadows... We'll try and do what most people before have not been able to do. Try and unravel the mystery of what President Ronald Reagan was thinking in 1986 when the bill landed on his desk. If you love this podcast, please help us get the word out by following, rating, reviewing, and sharing it with your friends. Out of the Shadows is written by Cesar Hernandez. It's also written, edited, hosted, and executive produced by Patty Rodriguez and Eric Galindo. It's produced by Betsy Cardenas, Karen Lopez, and Gabby Watts. It's sound designed, mixed, and mastered by Jesse Neiswanger. Our studio engineer is Clay Hillenberg. Karen Garcia, that's me, is our announcer. Out of the Shadows is a production of Sin Miedo Productions and School of Humans in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura Podcast Network. The podcast is also executive produced by Giselle Bances, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Chad Crowley. Our marketing and art team is led by Jasmine Mejia. Original music by E. Arenas. And if you loved his cover of Los Caminos de la Vida, this podcast theme song, you can listen to it on all music platforms. Historical audio for Out of the Shadows comes from the Reagan Presidential Library and the National Archives. Special thanks to Ian Vargas, Alex and Ollie, Caitlin Betger, Gab Chabran, Daisy Church, 
Angel Lopez Galindo, Juliana Gamis, Ryan Gordon, Brian Matheson, Claudia Marticorena, Oscar Ramirez, John Rodriguez, Juan Rodriguez, Joshua Sandoval, Eric Sklar, Tony Sorrentino, and Megan Tan. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.